to Educate, the alternative classroom experience brought to you by me, Katie Conn, from my London bedroom. I am so pleased to be back recording another episode and this time, folks, you're going to have to deal with me. I'm going to be talking all about mansplaining. And before we kick off, I just want to let you know that this isn't a topic where I'm going to be berating men. (laughs) So I just want to state that before we get going. This is actually just me doing a deep dive on the internet and trying my best to kind of wade through all of the visual noise and understand what it actually means from many different perspectives. After all, you don't really want to call someone a mansplainer or unfairly be called a mansplainer if no one actually knows what mansplaining means. And if you are going to call somebody a mansplainer, which could be fair enough, and I will not take that away from you. But it is super important before we start using words that could potentially hold a lot of meaning and a lot of potential upset. It is really important we understand the appropriate contexts in which we can use the term. So guys, let's strap in, get your textbooks, get your number two pencils, get your bendy rulers out. (gasps) How cool are bendy rulers? Okay, sidetrack. Let's go back to the origins of mansplaining, shall we? So, what actually is mansplaining? So according to dictionary.com, mansplaining is to explain something to a woman in a condescending, overconfident and often inaccurate or oversimplified manner, typically to a woman already knowledgeable about the topic. So the example that dictionary.com gives is he was mansplaining to her about female friendships. Okay, cool. I get what you mean. So you basically don't want to be explained something that you already have a real understanding of and you have the lived experience. Perhaps in this context, the woman probably has lived experience of female friendships and you don't really need a man to tell you about that because you already know it. Cool. Okay, so let's find out the origins of the term. So (laughs) I'm going to break rule 101 of any essay writing ever throughout school and university but you know educators here to shake up those rules and uh i mean who doesn't love wikipedia (laughs) right don't judge me any of my past lecturers or teachers if you're listening to this and i'm sorry but the term mansplaining was inspired by an essay men explain things to me facts didn't get it their way written by rebecca solnit and published on tomdispatch.com on the 13th of april 2008 So in the essay, Solnit told an anecdote about a man at a party who said he had heard she had written some books. She began to talk about her most recent, whereupon the man cut her off and asked if she had heard about the very important Myerbridge book that came out this year. Not considering that it might be, as in fact it was, Solnit's book. Solnit did not use the word mansplaining in the essay, but she described the phenomenon as something every woman knows. A month later, the word appeared in a comment on the social network LiveJournal. It became popular among feminist bloggers before entering mainstream commentary. The word was included in 2010 by the New York Times as one of its words of the year, nominated in 2012 for the American Dialect Society's Most Creative Word of the Year, and added in 2014 to the online Oxford Dictionaries. Woohoo! You go, mansplaining! You made it in the dictionary. Get in. Good for you. Okay, 
So that's a really funny anecdote. Imagine how sort of cool though you would feel like the mic drop afterwards being like, yeah, I wrote it. Oh gosh, that's something I would, I think I would pay to witness. Wow. Well, I hope it felt very, very good, Solnit. I hope that that moment just made you feel fuzzy and warm inside as well as a burning sense of anger. When does a man explaining something become mansplaining? Because this is actually the key crux of my deep dive here because I think it's really important to understand the definition here because I think the second you don't understand or there's a disconnect here with what you actually think of the semantic meaning of mansplaining, the second you could get into some really dodgy territory and unfairly label a man as a mansplainer if he's just explaining something. So thank you, Internet. Once again, you did answer my question. So a BBC article by Kim Goodwin goes on to explain what mansplaining is and when you know you've stepped into mansplaining territory. And very helpfully, she writes a flow diagram to explain when you may be mansplaining. And this actually went viral on the internet. So I'm going to find some nuggets of wisdom in this article and we're going to learn together. So Kim Goodwin was asked to help some colleagues find out and actually tell them if they were being helpful or condescending, aka stepping into mansplaining territory. So she created a simple chart which went unexpectedly viral. She spent a few minutes drafting the diagram and she said that she often does for her work examine and explain ideas so she realised quickly that the splaining part comes down to three factors. And I'm paraphrasing here, but now I'm going to directly quote her. Number one of these three factors. Do they want the explanation? If someone asks you a question, explain away. Unsolicited explanations may be fine within reason if you're someone's teacher or manager. Explaining after they've declined your help is almost always disrespectful. Conversation is a good place to start building the habit of consent. Wow, that's very interesting. It really makes me think of that phrase, did I ask? So if somebody doesn't ask for your opinion or advice, maybe just really think if it's maybe your place to step in at that point and give your advice if it hasn't been asked for. Um, Yeah, I guess we can all reflect on that. So... Number two of the splaining three factors. Are you making bad assumptions about competence? Explaining things to knowledgeable people isn't just wasting everyone's time. You may, regardless of your intent, undermine them by implying you don't trust their competence or intelligence. You also run the risk of undermining yourself by looking like you have an inflated opinion about your own knowledge. Very interesting. So if somebody maybe works with you. Don't explain something super basically if they already probably know about it. Otherwise, it's just insulting everybody's intelligence and you're wasting time. Cool. Number three, how does bias affect your interpretation of the above? Both questions are complicated by sexism and other kinds of bias. We're all taught gender bias in behaviour and communication from an early age with boys and girls being criticised and praised for different behaviours in school. We all like to think we treat people fairly, but men often assume women are less competent. So a Guardian article by Erin Brooke explains how the suffix splaining is the powerful key in unlocking this discussion. The 
Splaining suffix has been applied to many situations. White splaining, cis splaining, het splaining, rich splaining. The important thing to note about these words is how they highlight the power differential. The word always describes the act of the person with the most power in the conversation. The man, the white person, the cisgendered person, the heterosexual person, the rich person, and so on. This is why terms such as femsplaining or womansplaining to describe the act of a woman speaking condescendingly to a man are not generally accepted. So the article then goes on to say some things that can contribute to splaining. Okay, so forget the man bit of the mansplaining. Think of just the splaining act that can follow and let's just focus on the splaining, guys. <laughs> I don't really know how to, how to say that. Dismissing or downplaying someone's feelings. We sometimes think that others are overreacting, but it's important to remember that feelings rarely come from nothing and people are often showing us only a fraction of what they actually feel to protect themselves. Story sharing. Sometimes we share similar stories or experiences in the hope of connecting with someone. This can sometimes come across as one-upping or subject changing, so it's best to check if this is the appropriate time. Ah, uh, okay. Yes, this really makes sense because you do want to, if you're in a conversation, you know, bring up something that feels like a shared experience in the hope of connecting with somebody to say, yes, I really empathise, but actually perhaps it's not the right time to jump in. So I guess that kind of feeds into this general level of splaining. Just because you think you can relate doesn't mean that you automatically do. And therefore, by speaking up and trying to say it, it might come up as trying to one-upping or change the subject. That is a really interesting idea. And finally, the third factor that contributes to splaining, according to this article, debate. Many people like to debate, but not every conversation needs a devil's advocate or a contrary point of view. The assumption that someone hasn't heard a counterpoint before can be very patronising. Absolutely. I think that's such an important point. And especially when you're hearing from people who are brave enough to talk about their lived experiences that are often in context of quite traumatic wider societal issues like racism, classism. If somebody is brave enough to talk to you about a specific issue or a topic that really affects them and they've lived through with those experiences, just check yourself, check your privilege and go, is this my place to be offering a counter argument in this moment in time? Is there a better way I can assess this situation without trying to look like I'm, I don't know, splaining away. <laughs> so I guess what we can say is there are three factors that fit inside the splaining category, dismissing or downplaying someone's feelings, story sharing and debate. So think of all of these things that encompass what splaining is, put man at the beginning of it, put white at the beginning of it, cis at the beginning of it, het, rich, basically anything to do with having privilege and those three combined factors will contribute as to whether you are splaining a particular thing. In this context, if you put man before these three factors that make up splaining, I'm afraid you have been mansplaining. <laughs> There's no other phrase for it. <laughs> to look at 
look at some more examples as to why you could be a mansplainer, specifically talking about mansplaining here, not just splaining. According to Eleanor Beaton in an article, she writes five points. So, number one, you have read this column on mansplaining and have not yet questioned whether you mansplain. <laughs> so I guess after reading her article, which I will put in the show notes, have you had any moment of self-reflection? Even if you are a mansplainer, even if you're not a mansplainer, have you self-reflected? And if you haven't, why is that? Number two, you automatically think you know more than women, especially younger women. Okay, this is the first time that age has come into this. Number three, you interrupt women, any women, more than once per week. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Number four, the women in your world are not coming to you with ideas. Ooh, that's interesting. And number five, you don't ask many open-ended questions. That's very interesting as well. I wonder why. <laughs> Again, I don't mean to do it like that. I guess that is an open question for us to all think about. But I do wonder why that is. Is it because a mansplainer has their own opinions about how something should appear or be done? I don't know. Just food for thought, hey? So if we're going to hop back to the Erin Brooke article, she goes on to say, here are some quick tips for splainers who want to change their ways. Okay, so we're not just on man here, but obviously keep man in your head because this episode is about mansplaining. So number one, stop, say, I'm sorry. I'm just so fascinated by this topic and hand the mic back, so to speak. A simple, could you tell me more, will do. Ask more questions to try to keep track of how much talking you're doing in the conversation. Interesting, okay. I feel like everybody, well, I'm definitely a chatterbox. I'm constantly always thinking about this, like, please shut up, Katie. <laughs> Stop it. When it comes to someone else's feelings, in your head, replace drama with physics. This will help you see that emotions are rarely created out of nothing. They are a reaction to something. If the reaction is larger than warranted from the data you have in front of you, something else is affecting the reaction, something you may not know about. Wow, I feel like a penny has just dropped in my head there. Context is key. And if you don't have all of the context, apart from the words in front of you, you might need to go away and do a bit more digging before you respond. Okay, that's interesting. And take a quick inventory of power dynamics in a conversational situation and adjust accordingly. Look for all the possible isms, racism, sexism, classism, and recognise that sometimes your presence prevents others from expressing themselves due to these power dynamics. Work to foster a more inclusive environment by masking space for others to speak. In conclusion, pass the mic, baby! Work out if your voice should be the loudest or the voice that should hold the most weight in certain discussions. Woohoo! Okay, so Erin concludes that in conclusion, no mansplaining is not a sexist term, but it upholds sexist power dynamics just as other forms of splaining upholds other power dynamics. And therefore, we should all be aware of and work towards bettering our conversational behaviours. Okay, so... <laughs> Just think before you speak is my main takeaway from that, I think. A conversation is a two-way streak. Don't just have a one-way conversation, otherwise you might be at risk of falling into the splaining category and no one wants to be in there, guys. We do not want that one little bit. Really interestingly, an article from The Cut speaks about mansplaining and it says that it's become a household phrase on the internet in the last few years. 
mansplaining, has been used to characterise an ever-growing variety of unpleasant or uncomfortable interactions between a man and a woman, even those that aren't actually marked by sexist aggression. Okay, so I guess here what I'm reading is if we are going to put a label or the mansplaining label on a situation between a man and a woman, it's really important to differentiate whether or not this is actually an example of mansplaining that is motivated by sexism or if in fact it was just an uncomfortable topic of conversation and it's easy to label a man in that situation as a mansplainer because, you know, maybe you're angry. And I think it's just really important with all of these labels to actually really reflect before you say or label somebody as a mansplainer because it's quite a weighted and loaded term and you might really regret saying something if you have said it in the moment and actually haven't really thought of the context too much. So that's just something to really think about. I also think if you have ever been called a mansplainer and you're listening to this, it's really natural that you're going to probably feel in that heat of the moment really annoyed and feel affronted and maybe shameful. And that's really normal. But I think, you know, after all, we are only human. And I can imagine, and I don't want to mansplain, uh, although we have learned in this discussion that it doesn't work the other way around because of power structures. And no one likes to feel called out on their behaviour. Um, it's quite confronting. And especially, you know, maybe if the sentiment of your words in the discussion is coming from a place where you're perhaps advocating necessary change for in this context of mansplaining women. But I can imagine you might feel a bit like, oh, can't men, like, why can't men do anything right? Blah, blah. I can imagine that that is a, a thought pattern that might come into your brain at that point in time. But all I can say is just take stock, take some time to reflect on why you've been called this in that particular context and just learn from it. You haven't been called a dickhead. Um, <laughs> maybe you have, I don't know. But we all make mistakes. Uh, the patriarchy is rife. My favourite thing that I love to hate. Um, and it takes time to unlearn behaviours um, like this. And if you really don't agree with the name that's been put on you in the context, maybe calmly ask, could you please explain to me why you've said this? I'd like to learn more. And, you know, at the end of the day, just listen to what they have to say. Learn, leave behind your bruised ego, leave it at the door, move on. Just don't repeat it. Simple, simple. <laughs> much for tuning in to this particular episode of Educate that spoke all about mansplaining. I hope you, like me, learned a lot about it. I think I've come away with a much clearer understanding as to when it's appropriate to use that label and when to maybe keep that label to myself until maybe another incident does happen where I can confirm that yes, darling, I have experienced mansplaining. <laughs> And on next week's agenda, I am joined by the brilliant Becca Caddy inside the audio classroom. And she teaches me all about screen time. And I have to be honest, the conversation was absolutely mind-blowing. I learned so much and I cannot wait for you guys to listen. If you enjoyed today's episode, share with a friend and follow me at educate underscore podcast on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to come and teach me a lesson, you know what to do, just slide into my DMs. Woohoo!